Welcome into the Better Advertising with Better AMS podcast. I am your host, Justin Knuckles, and today I am joined alongside a great friend here, Keith Heyman. Welcome into the show, Keith. Appreciate it, Justin. It is um, great to have you on as you have been a director of marketplace across Amazon, Walmart, um, and really started as a private label, your private label brand owner yourself, right? Um, built a brand to six figures, exited in 2021. Is that kind of your your origin story? Yeah. So I've been in the Amazon space specifically for a little over five years, but um, you know, selling online is is not new to me. I've been doing eBay on and off for over 20 years. So the transition to Amazon was was pretty straightforward. Question, before you got into Amazon, what other e-commerce experience had you dipped your toes into? So eBay, it was mostly just a side hustle of, you know, old school eBay was basically a garage sale of items. <laughs> Nobody was selling anything new on there. It was, hey, we got some old stuff, antiques, collectibles. So that's mostly what I was selling, just kind of buying and reselling, just kind of hustling as a uh, a side hobby. Yeah, I remember when I first got started on Amazon myself in 2019, eBay was on its way out and everyone described that as the flea market. So not far off your garage sale um, analogy. I, th- I think it's making a comeback, though, because collectibles got huge in COVID. We have a big, uh, big market with uh, resale items and, and collector's items. Um, and eBay seems to be the place to go for that um, more so than Amazon, I think, than anywhere else. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, question for you. You have some killer LinkedIn content. And, you know, as this is an advertising podcast, uh, your LinkedIn post this last Wednesday was specifically about that and how new sellers into a market don't necessarily have the budget to compete against, you know, these massive brands that are dominating the top of page one already. And so these bigger brands are really using advertising as a way to deflect new sellers as a barrier to entry, um, since there's not much else that you can do to stop a, a new seller from entering your market. So, as you're advising like a new private label seller, what do you recommend if you just don't have the budget to to compete against some of these massive, you know, CPG brands possibly? Yeah, so I guess I'll kind of go into why I made that post. You know, over the years, e- even on LinkedIn, I see a lot of posts saying like, "Hey, you can get started selling on Amazon for $500 or $1,000." And while that might be true, you know, the people posting this don't necessarily define like what type of selling you're doing. Like you can absolutely get started on Amazon for almost no money if you just want to sell some used books. You got some books in your closet, you want to put an offer on a couple of ASINs. Yeah, you can get started next week. But you know, a lot of these posts almost make it sound like you can create a private label or white label business and go head to head with, you know, a 10 or 20 million dollar revenue company that's been established for 10 years. And it's just not realistic when, you know, you're going against competitors or categories where the CPCs are, you know, five to seven dollars and the average, you know, price point is maybe fifteen to twenty dollars. You know, these are established companies and, and the amount of cash it's gonna take to overcome a fragmented or consolidated market is possibly gonna be in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. When you include inventory, advertising, cash flow, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great point. Putting it all in context and setting your expectations. Like you said, you can get started with $500, sure, but don't expect to, you know, be moving the number of units and have the revenue that top sellers are having. Not to mention a lot of those bigger brands that are established have a catalog that they're looking to play maybe the loss leader approach 
get a customer in at a, at a loss and sell them other products in the catalog where a new seller may have one or two SKUs. You have to make a profit potentially on that one sale. Now, now where I've seen, you know, if you want to do very niche private label, a very specific product, maybe the search volume is two or 300 a month, you can absolutely succeed and be profitable, but your top line revenue is just not going to be that high. And that's really what I want people to understand. Like, yeah, you have a business, you know, yeah, you're profitable, but realistically with your product niche, you're only going to do tens of thousands of dollars. You're not going to break into the hundreds of thousands and margins with FBA are unfortunately low because the barrier to entry is so easy uh, for new sellers to come on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes a market being as niche as it is, there's there's only so much that you can really take over. Um, not to mention, that's not something you maybe quit your day job for. <laughs> it's something you do at night and continue selling products uh, on the side for. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of another LinkedIn post that you had, I thought this was really interesting. You talked about commodity product sellers. Um, this could be a controversial take. But, you know, maybe advising staying away from the heavy branding, A plus content, um, trying to, you know, build a, a name brand around, you know, very, very cheap products that um, like you compared to gasoline, like you're not looking for, you know, gasoline with a specific ingredient when you're low on gas, you're looking for which pump has the cheapest price right now. So it's the same thing on Amazon. If you were advising a new brand going into this space at these kind of price points, what is your recommendation for for launching taking on that you know trying to gain new customers establish yourself in that market other than price point yeah if at all so you really have to identify your product i've used the term a need-based product versus a want-based product you know if if you need a pin you're just going to buy go on amazon and buy the cheapest set of ballpoint pins you know 10 pack five pack whatever that is you're probably buying within the first five search results. Are you realistically looking at the full carousel in A plus? Probably not. You're probably shopping on price point. Now, if you were shopping for a pin, let's say it's a designer item, custom engraved, wooden pin, super fancy for your desk, you know, hundred dollar price point. That, that's a want based item, and want based items typically tend to have a longer consideration period and you're going to be looking at that a plus content the full carousel actually reading the bullet points so you have to keep in mind like how your products fit this you know customer search you know is it need based is it want based if you're buying paper clips you could care less about the branding you just need some paper clips and so that's where price point matters and i see a lot of brands sinking a ton of money into optimization for six dollar products when in reality putting that money into you know cheaper cogs better logistics lowering your price is really what's going to move the needle i think just as important as that could be you know the customer service side of the business too because ratings and reviews alongside price are hand in hand two big variables in that customer decision at like a five six dollar price point right like if it's a if it's a one star six dollar product versus a four and a half star six dollar product um, that's probably what's going to make the difference in that final, um, AB decision, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and typically, you know, sellers that sell low price point items, they, they make it up in volume. They'll have massive catalogs with five or 6,000 SKUs. Sure. So it's, it's low margins, high volume. Yep, yep. That's the model. Awesome. Well, 
we're talking about uh, margin. Uh, it seems that tacos uh, has become a big kind of pain point for people in the industry um, recently as, as CPCs are driving up, um, as we're talking about new sellers entering markets. So how is this impacting your advertising decisions and planning? Um, how are you looking at that tacos metric as it pertains to advertising? So you definitely want to always break it down by SKU. Um, you know, unless you have only a couple SKUs in a category, you know, you need to be looking at this across by SKU, and then also, you know, take a, take into consideration your market share. So, you know, a defensive mechanism where you own the market, you own the organic placements, you you typically are going to be okay with the low ROAS, but looking at your your tacos, your total ROAS instead. Uh, offensive is the exact opposite. You want that higher ROAS and consideration. You're going to have higher ad, ad attributed sales leading to a lower total ROAS. It's interesting you just differentiated those strategies there, offensive and defensive. So you're saying with a defensive strategy, right, defending your own branded search terms, your own ASINs, is that the way you're defining defensive? Uh, I mean, it could be a branded defense or it could be a non-branded defense. You know, if you dominate the front page search results and you know you have a super high tacos because you're getting organic sales you're okay with paying five dollars cpcs on a ten dollar item with a, a negative robas if you're making it up on the organic sales i'm glad to hear you really put a differentiation in the way you're you're defining your tacos metric um because that's how we push you know a lot of the brands to think about it and that's we had a guest on in the past week um, who talked about it very similar. You know, how do we look at ACOS? Well, define your strategies. If this is a ranking campaign, um, you know, don't expect a ROAS over one. But if it's a, you know, long tail keyword campaign, like we can have higher expectations for that. So setting those differentiations or those delineations between your your budget and your strategies is critical. So then you're talking about the offensive strategies. Um, is that really like your ranking campaigns, um, competitive keyword campaigns? Yeah. So any, any sort of non-branded, you know, whether it's like a competitor conquesting of competitor keywords or non-branded search terms. And the next question for you over here is again, you're, you're director of marketplace. You oversee Amazon and Walmart. So a lot of sellers are talking and getting excited about what's coming on Walmart, the new opportunities there. Um, you know, how excited are you to to be a part of Walmart and grow and develop over in that marketplace in the next year to three years, uh, not just for yourself, but for for any brand looking to possibly come on to Walmart? So, uh, you know, Walmart, I'm, I'm optimistic on it for everybody. They're really the only company that could probably truly go head to head with Amazon. Now, I, I forget the exact numbers. There's still a fraction of total e-commerce sales compared to what Amazon's doing. But, you know, when first place is... 35 or 40 percent wherever Amazon's at and Walmart's, you know, in the single digits and then everyone below that's at two or one percent, you know, Walmart's realistically the next uh, marketplace channel for most sellers. Um, And I think it's important to get ahead of that and get on there now in case something happens, you know, when change happens and when trends shift, it can happen fast. And we might see Walmart double sales you know, double revenue for marketplace sellers year after year for the next three years. And then we might be a a one-to-one ratio. Yeah. I don't think anyone denies how quickly e-commerce moves. So it could take, you know, one, one new announcement from Walmart to make it just as competitive as Amazon. Um, 
and, and setting up for the future is, is critical. Um, there's other marketplaces coming along. Target looks really exciting, but I think Walmart's probably the next place to be. And I know Destiny's not here, um, Miss Bentonville, but she would definitely uh, vouch for Walmart all day. So yeah, definitely the place to be. Any caveats or warnings like before sellers just blindly go look to get into Walmart? Um, I've, I've maybe spent two to three months myself as a private label seller on Walmart. So I can't even call myself the expert, but what would you uh, kind of caution maybe about going on to Walmart for new sellers? So just based on, you know, set your expectations low, um, you know, the, the full build out compared to the revenue you're getting, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze right now. Um, you know, you're probably not going to blow away your expectations with, with the sales you're doing on Walmart. I would just treat it more as though like, Hey, we're getting ready for an opportunity. Definitely. Just setting yourself up for success tomorrow. Um, not looking to squeeze, like you said, everything out today. Yeah. And then question for you. I know we were talking about it right before we started recording here, but um, this is the end of, of Prime Week 2. I know it's not officially called Prime Week. I think it was the Prime Early Access uh, sale. But um, I know us as an agency, we saw a lift. I'm not going to say it was you know the Prime Day lift we saw back in July, but it was, I think, a little bit bigger than, than I certainly expected. Um, you know, not a lot of brands leaned into it too aggressively like they did back during Prime Day. It was a lot of, I saw coupons, um, maybe some overstocked items that were on Prime Early Access. But overall, I saw significant impression lifts. So customers were definitely, um, you know, building lists, if not shopping um, for Q4. So those were our, you know, impressions from the, the event. But what were your guys' takeaways? Yeah, so, I mean, we... Everyone, you know, myself and everyone I've talked to saw a lift, you know, it was a fraction of, of you know, a fraction of what you typically see in a, a July or June prime day. I didn't see a whole lot of companies doing great deals. I saw a lot of, you know, the Amazon native products have great deals, the Kindles, et cetera. Um, but companies, I think, are holding back for more of a Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And, you know, most companies, I think, were hesitant to really do you have the same kind of deals just because of how hard it is to get inventory into FBA for Q4? What what I think Amazon was doing was just trying to shift the shopping, Q4 shopping from November to October. You know, whether or not they truly did that and succeeded, it's, it's hard to say, but, um, you know, everyone did see a lift. And I think uh, most people probably saw at least a 2x yeah, I think that's at least what we saw. And it's interesting, you know, talking about moving Q4 sales a little bit further up into October. I remember what, two years back, I think it was October 2020 is when they had a prime day. Um, and that did very, very well. So it's interesting to see this, you know, second prime day not do as it did back October 2020. And I wonder if that has anything to do with, you know, the prime day we had back in July and trying to do a second one. Or if it more so has to do with just kind of where we are in the you know economic environment with you know inflation, um, you know uncertainty around you know wars and all this stuff. So it's interesting to see you know what the seasonality difference is between 2020 versus now. Yeah, 2020, everyone still had their stimulus checks, and you know you couldn't get <laughs> couldn't get enough big screen TVs. Whereas it's just the opposite now. Everyone knows, like Targets had the report of how overstocked they are. I think I just saw Nike give a report saying they have forty percent too much inventory. 
um, which might have been part of the reason maybe Amazon knew some of these other uh, channels were going to do big sales and just got ahead of the the ball and just declared their sale first and let everyone else match them. Definitely. I think if it wasn't great for, you know, the day of, I say, can say it's going to be great for the rest of Q4 with, um, you know, if you're running DSP, this is our plug for you know some DSP advertising. Um, great to remarket to all those eyeballs that we got on listings um, during that two-day event. So do you guys run any DSP yourselves? Yeah, uh, yeah so we do, do DSP. Uh, so I got actually a question for you. Do you yeah. do any type of pullback or anything on DSP after large prime days like this? Because you know, if you're not if you're not running a sale, you know, you might be retargeting the people who have already bought or yeah. So and then we just did a webinar yesterday on this exact topic of of remarketing at different stages of the funnel. So um, this is actually when we probably step on the gas a little bit more um, and using exclusions. So we would you know exclude past 365 day customers if it's a if it's a one time purchase kind of product. If it's something that you buy every 30 days, maybe you just exclude the last 30 day purchasers. Um, but that's, that's everything with DSP for us is the exclusion factor. Okay. So you're, you kind of step on it right now because we're leaning into the holiday season. Yeah. So we would go very heavily on remarketing, you know, views over the last seven, 14, 30 days, um, and excluding purchasers. Um, if that made sense again for the product, if it's something that you continue to refill or repurchase, then, um, can it makes sense to continue remarketing to those customers? Yeah, that makes sense. I was curious if it would kind of change the strategy with a, a second prime day, but yeah, no, we, we love to utilize any big traffic days, um, with DSP, um, clients to, uh, to just, you know, try and squeeze as much sales as we can out of that one or two day event and then fill the funnel the rest of the time with DSP. Do you have any um, suggestions? So, you know, obviously there's some uh, difficulties in creating audiences for smaller brands. What do you do in a circumstance like that? We have a small brand, they're wanting to get started in DSP, but can't quite build the audiences segmented out yet. That's a great question. In fact, I even not just with smaller brands, but with like new product launches, you know, we have um, a very large electronics brand that recently launched a product and currently runs DSP with us. And we can't do any custom audiences, at least to the extent that we would like, because it just doesn't have the audience that has visited the listing yet. Right. Yeah. So I think that's what a lot of smaller brands would be seeing too. So there are ways to utilize DSP around that. Um, Obviously, more on the prospecting side, you can run contextual targeting, um, which is like the auto campaign of, of DSP. Um, you can do in-market, lifestyle audiences, all that. But in terms of remarketing, um, we would just start at the the farthest look back date. So I think the furthest views look back you can do is a 90-day look back. So we would start with that. And it might just take pumping some PPC traffic into your listing to start. Um, you know, putting, you know, maybe five X your budget on PPC for two weeks, um, pushing top of search campaigns. So you're getting, you know, the placement and the clicks at the top of search on the most competitive keywords. So those are very warm leads looking for, for products. And then you can build custom audiences around that. So you can say, I want to remarket to people that have visited my listing and exclude those that have already purchased my product, but also exclude those that have purchased competitor products too. So that way, you know, um, there's still a warm lead in the market and still in that consideration phase. 
Um, but it might just take a little front end investment on PPC to build your traffic. Um, or if you, you know, utilize social media, um, can run some social ads, um, you can get creative with just getting traffic to your listing in order to build all those custom audiences. But that's not to say you can't start with DSP doing like maybe some prospecting and um, some some forms of custom audiences. No, that's that's great advice. Yeah, you definitely have to put money into it to to build up the custom custom views retargeting and purchase retargeting audiences. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we love at least I love it, a seven day views look back more so than like a 90 day views look back. But if the audience size isn't there, then we'll take the, the smallest we can get. And sometimes that's 90 or 60 days, uh, view look back. So, um, smaller markets, smaller product niches. Um, it just might be that way. Yeah. Yeah. Seven days can be pretty tough depending on, uh, unless it's a hero skew. Yeah. You have to be in a pretty big market to have a big enough pool for a seven day custom audience. Well, awesome. I have one last question here for you. Um, again, I'll, I'll put the link here for your uh, your LinkedIn post, but um, you posted a picture of your super cool workstation, <laughs> um, work from home Amazon battle station. Um, what game changing life hack office items do you do you have that um, are a must have for us work from home warriors? So uh, I'll throw in a few few uh, plugs for brands here. So I used to be a channel manager for Amazon at Veridesk. They rebranded to Veri. Uh, so I have one of their 48-inch standing desk. Definitely recommend. Even if you don't stand, just having the height adjustment of keeping the screens flush with your eyes um, is mm-hmm. ideal. You know, I change chairs depending on, like, if my back's hurting or not and can raise and lower the desk. Uh, other than that, I have a Wave keyboard, which is ergonomic. Um, most of my other accessories are Logitech. And then uh, I don't know if you can see in the picture, but I got these arm swivels that I rest my arms on and it makes me look kind of robotic. And that way it keeps my shoulders and arms level and I just kind of swivel between keyboard and mouse. And then the uh, final one, uh, a headset. I'm a huge believer in having a headset, especially when you work from home. Just the clarity. You can hear everybody in meetings much better. Yes, I, I love it. You're a man of ergonomics, it sounds like. So. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I'm a big fan of standing desk myself. Yeah, no, I, I try to be as I've, I've gotten older. I used to go the cheap route where, you know, I was looking down, just working out on the laptop and it definitely pays for yourself having a well, uh, established setup just in productivity alone. Yes. I have my, uh, my like cushion standing mat, my, um, yeah, my, my rested wrist pad. So yes, ergonomics, it's the best investment you can make as a work from home. There you go. Well, hey, awesome. I appreciate the time today, Keith. Um, we'd love to um, chat again in the future. Um, I hope you have a great rest of Q4. Um, good luck, and we will chat again. To everybody else, I appreciate the time, and we will see you all next week. Appreciate it, Justin.